This is uh, the penultimate episode of the Trailer Park Boys course produced by Los Altos Institute, uh, taught by Stuart Parker in the spring of 2020. As with other episodes, uh, following the lecture, there's a question and answer period, and some of the uh, participants have asked for their remarks to be redacted thus producing a little bit of choppiness and confusion in the Q&A portion. Anyway, thank you for listening to uh, this production. Higher production value work will now uh, go into production following our adaptation of Trailer Park Boys and our other summer courses. We can see that uh, more than many uh, other uh, episodes of the show, um, we read uh, Jim Leahy is a drunk bastard in um, a, uh, a, a different context in um, 2020 than in 2002, and it was made. This is uh, 18 years ago, nearly a generation um, ago that the show came out. And I, of course, I mean, so often when a TV show decides to make a special election episode, it reveals a lot about um, its politics and its larger interpretation of the world. I think of um, uh, the Prisoners election episode in uh, 1969 as um, uh, a landmark in unfolding the... Uh, uh, that shows a very idiosyncratic worldview. So this is, uh, right, so this is the show's one real foray in its world into partisan politics. And it reveals a whole bunch about um, these fundamental political values. But um, the past or some of the, the things that the show seeks to mobilize or recognize here um, have been assigned different meanings in our present than they had in 2002, although the shift in meanings was already underway. And in particular, um, these, the, the, the polarity around which our politics is organized today as epitomized in the Trump election is this idea of progressivism versus populism. This idea that um, we uh, should live in a world ruled by experts um, as the only possible alternative to a world ruled by right-wing authoritarians. Uh, and that both of these we understand as taking place within a neoliberal economic order. And uh, today, um, in many ways, the term progressive has returned to its roots in the late 19th century. You have to remember that the, the first self-identified progressive president of the United States was Theodore Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt never identified as a progressive. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the progressive. And what progressivism was, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt, um, was a cross-partisan understanding of politics. So from the very beginning, there were right-wing progressives and left-wing progressives who sometimes made common cause with one another around things like civil service reform. 
but were typically located in different political parties. So right up to the 1990s, there were progressive conservatives and there were progressive socialists. And progressive conservatives are people who believed that um, democracy and markets are noisy and chaotic. And we want, to may, we want to limit the amount of democracy the, and the amount of freedom in the marketplace. And the way we're going to do that is through state regulation by experts. Uh, and on the left, um, there are progressives who believed um, in opposite things, but believed that the best way to achieve their goals was state regulation, uh, expertise, um, and reducing the role of democratic and market processes, of chaotic processes. That's why the, uh, the still authoritative book on the rise of progressivism in the United States in the late 19th century is a book called The Search for Order, because progressives believe or believe, uh, believe that natural systems are disordered and the application of expertise will bring about greater order and order and efficiency are a goal in and of themselves. Uh, so the corollary, of course, of progressives was a movement that had come about only about a decade earlier which was the populist movement. And populists, like progressives, used to be spread across all political tendencies. And populists largely believed the opposite. They believed that um, we needed more democracy, fewer experts, we needed um, power to flow into the hands of elected officials and away from the hands of unelected officials. Uh, believed in lots of market competition, lots of votes, um, and they saw intrinsic value in this chaos. Um, progressives, uh, believe, progressives believe strongly in the idea of a meritocratic elite. They believed that our societies had elites and that when there were problems with elite governance, it was because we were looking to the wrong elite not because we were looking to an elite. Uh, populists tended to oppose elites and believe that elites were intrinsically likely to work against the interests of the majority uh, and promote their own interests. Uh, so, and of course, in most political parties, because they were a mixture of populists and progressives, you would get a hodgepodge of this discourse because what political parties were about was socialism or capitalism or um, secularism or desecularization or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, questions of the internal democracy of the society um, were, uh, were not things that political parties strongly divided on. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's not abnormal. Right? Political parties, um, historically, 
as big tent parties have had to create spaces for uh, for parts of their coalition that are adversarial with other parts of their coalition. Uh, now, of course, that's collapsed uh, in um, in the West for the most part. Um, what we see now is that parties of the right are dominated uh, by populist discourses and populist movements, and parties of the um, left and center tend to be dominated by progressive forces and progressive movements. Um, this domination has, especially in the center left, intensified because while there's still room for a certain amount of populism in the center and on the left, there is no room for progressives on the right anymore. And so we've seen a mass exodus of progressive elites from parties of the right onto parties of the left. And what we've seen is um, long-term politicians on the left who started on the left and who have drifted to the right have not been pushed out of their parties, but instead have fused with refugees from the right to become its political leadership class. So, um, yeah, ergo the Lincoln Project. So Hillary Clinton, emblematic of the, uh, of the ways in which the progressive uh, tendency for, of the right um, has become the leadership of the left. Uh, that there's an easy transition from the Goldwater movement to the Southern Democrats to the third way Democrats to where we were in 2016. Uh, and, um, there's, uh, and this has permitted a lot of stuff. So one of the things that then happens when you see left-wing populists, and left-wing populists are, are, are a popular disruptive force, right? Jeremy Corbyn, left populist. Bernie Sanders, left populist. Um, and it's interesting to see some of the accusations those individuals are tarred with. Um, they are often called um, authoritarian. Uh, they're often called misogynistic. Uh, it's suggested that they flirt with dangerous elements of the far right. Um, the assumption is that if you get up there and you preach socialism and in a, in a populist way, you're not trustworthy to the elites of the political left in the present you are thought to be some sort of incipient right-wing authoritarian. And it's very, e it's very interesting to see how easily accusations of anti-Semitism and misogyny, um, those most strongly associated with the populist right of the 20th century, are so easy to tar left populists with today. Um, now, we look back at 2002, yes, exactly, they're the deep cover agents for the Russians, and of course, the stupid cult of Russia is back, so it's all coming together. This transition, um, of course, dislocates people who are 
economically marginalized or working class. Um, and uh, uh, make some prime targets for right-wing politics. Um, and largely, though, um, they've been highly resistant to that, right? Um, there is this ongoing myth that the majority of white working-class Americans voted for Donald Trump in 2016. 42% of white working-class Americans voted for Trump in 2016 as compared to 36% who had voted for Romney. So there was an increase, but people were far more interested in that than the fact that 57% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Uh, that did fit the narrative much less. And I had the privilege to be living in uh, Toronto during the rise of Rob Ford. And in many ways, the Ford movement was a harbinger of everything that we've come to see since. Because Ford did actually get a majority of the white working class and of the non-white working class. Um, Trump, uh, Ford ran the tables with the working class vote. Um, despite running on policies that people were actually aware were not in their economic interest. And it was not because they were stupid, it was because there was something more important than the number of hours your local library branch was open. That if you've given up on the idea that politics can ever materially benefit your class, if you just believe this is wall-to-wall -wall neoliberal hegemony, that the neoliberal agenda will advance no matter who is in office, then your politics become about other things. Uh, and in the case of the Ford election, uh, I really watched the rhetoric. I hadn't seen rhetoric like it since the Charlottetown Accord referendum in British Columbia. Now, of course, it's weird doing this from the vantage point of British Columbia because we used to be the most populous jurisdiction in Canada. Now we are the least culturally. The, the cultural change of Greater Vancouver is just, it, it, it's still, I'm just gobsmacked by it. Like it's just, it's easy to leave because it's not my home anymore. And and suddenly Ontario, which had been the least populous, most progressive jurisdiction, went the other way. And I remember this quote from the 92 Charlottetown Accord referendum in BC, when this person calls into an open line show, because it's just like one talk show host and Preston Manick, who are the no side. Um, they're outspent by the yes side 40 to one, and of course win. Um, and the guy says, uh, so, so, uh, the, the host says, so, so why are you, uh, why are you voting no in the referendum? And the guy says, well, cause when I vote no, I get to vote against the corporations. I get to vote against the unions. I get to vote against the socialists. I get to vote against the capitalists. I get to vote against the media. I get to vote against the whole damn lot of you. And, um, there's a useful metaphor for the Ford election uh, I found where, you know, uh, it's like 
I mean, a lot of the experience of like the family compact in Toronto and the city's traditional elite is it's an insufferably and pointlessly arrogant elite, right? It believes that Toronto is the second New York. It has no idea that it just lives in the third most interesting Midwestern Lake City. It um, has, uh, that's a Russ Kazalism. Uh, they, um, uh, so that, uh, that elite is so cartoonish and terrible. As my friend Steve said of the current mayor, I had no idea he was a real person. I thought John Tory was a hypothetical construct. What would John Tory think? Uh, so, um, yeah, so there's this like hypothetical construct of like corruption and entitlement and incompetence that's well-educated and arrogant. His one great achievement was to privatize a sports arena as a government deputy minister, switch jobs, and buy it at uh, one-tenth its cost uh, for the corporation he joined. That's uh, John Tory's one great, great achievement. And so um, the idea is you're living in your suburban home and some rich asshole starts parking their car there. And the cops won't do anything about it. The rich asshole doesn't care that you don't want his car there. And so you do the only sensible thing. You burn down your garage. Uh, with the car in it, and uh, that solves all your problems. Sure, you're down a garage, but it was worth it. And that, of course, is part of the nihilism that has crept into the populism of the present. It's the scene in Mystery Men where the heroes scratch the villain's car's paint with forks because that's the only option they have left. But I want to suggest that um, the moment of populism you're seeing in 2002 on Trailer Park Boys is a backward-looking rather than a forward-looking populism. It's not predictive of Rob Ford. It's not predictive of Donald Trump. It's a very different sort. And... What happens in the park is it's actually a debate about what the essence of populism is, because both candidates ultimately make a populist case, which is something that is unimaginable to us now. So let's begin with the Sam Losco theory of populism. Now, I loved Sam's lawn signs, and I am convinced that if the NDP had stolen the slogan from Trailer Park Boys in BC in 2005, they would have won the election. If they had just put up that mugshot of Gordon Campbell when he was arrested in Hawaii uh, as their lawn sign and then run on the slogan, Gordon Campbell is a drunk bastard. Uh, I think it would have been a landslide. Um, the... Uh, um, so Losco does one of the things that um, is a key ingredient in populism. Populism requires a villain. Progressivism has an implied villain. The villain is the people. Uh, progressivism is always trying to save the people from themselves. But what populism does is it constructs a binary opposition between 
the good guys who are the people and the elites who are the bad guys who are trying to sell the people out. So Sam Losco first and foremost identifies his villain, that Mr. Leahy is the elite who is trying to sell out the park, who no longer has your interests at heart. Um, another feature of populism is that populism uh, believes people have names and phone numbers and addresses. Um, populists will accuse people of being personally responsible for things. And if we think about Canadian politics, I think the moment Canada fell into the abyss it's been falling through ever since, um, is this turning point in the 2004 election. So um, the NDP had been on its deathbed and all these social movement activists backed Jack Layton, this city councillor from Toronto to be our new leader. And the people who initially endorsed Layton were people like Sven Robinson, Judy Rebick, all the usual suspects of the far left. And we very much felt that Leighton would be accountable to us. I rejoined the federal party to vote in the leadership race for him. And Leighton, I think, really did live up to that. Um, Leighton, and Leighton ran a populist socialist campaign in 2004. He, uh, we ran on uh, pulling out of NAFTA, all these old articles of faith. And the most populist moment in the campaign is where Jack Layton talks about the number of people in Canada who died when the federal government revoked the right to housing in the 1994 budget and repealed the Canada Assistance Plan Bill of Material Rights. And he confronted Paul Martin, said, you were the finance minister. These people died. This blood is on your hands. And the Canadian media went absolutely apeshit. Jack Layton had touched the third rail. He had held a person responsible for other people's deaths. And this was absolutely contrary to the genteel and progressive politics of Canada. And there's this period of 48 hours in the middle of the election where the NDP goes silent as this fight rips through the party's head office as to whether it will hold firm. And of course, we know it did not. And if you want to start counting the date from which Leighton begins making concessions to neoliberalism and turning the party further to the right instead of to the left, it's all from that date. It's clear, it was clearly a moment of crisis in the soul of a person and in the soul of the organization the person was in which is like, is populism possible? Do we have the guts to use this discourse? And uh, the answer was no. Uh, that's two and a half years after this episode was filmed. This bad event hasn't taken place yet when they make Jim Leahy as a drunk bastard. Uh, so, Losco blames Leahy 
lays out material blame. Um, and he also makes all kinds of completely ridiculous promises, which is not particularly unpopulist. I really enjoy the, and I'm going to make this the greatest trailer park in the entire world, uh, which uh, is just a, a lovely category. You know, it's, it's reminiscent of the best shed there ever was. Uh, so, um, uh, so Lasco makes the promises. Um, populists also rely heavily on the personality, not necessarily of their leader always, but of their candidates. Populists are a flamboyant bunch because they're not qualification driven. They're in fact anti-people who are qualification driven. So when they select representatives, they aren't looking for, they're not looking at the CV. The CV is, um, a, the CV is a problem. So what you, what you select people for is a charisma, an ability to connect with people, and you foreground their personality as emblematic of the populism that you're selling. So although Sam lives in a camper, and even by park standards has no qualifications, to the extent that anyone has any qualifications at all, Sam has the least. Um, and of course he's lost his veterinarian's license. So the personality rather than the CV uh, is the center, right? And that's, we really saw that of course in the Clinton-Trump contest that Hillary Clinton having a personality was a problem, not a solution. And uh, this, um, so uh, the last thing about populism, one of the reasons the progressives got going was um, because people broadly favored something called civil service reform over what was called the spoils system. In a populist politics, and not just populist politics, but many kinds of politics, their interaction with representative democracy is simply a series of the thing, same thing being said again and again, which is, hey, can you do me a favor? Uh, hey, can you do me a favor? Rob Ford, emblematic of that kind of politics, right? Always looking after every pothole, uh, you know, somebody calls him up, hey, Rob, can you do me a favor? Of course. And then at election time, Rob calls them and goes, hey, can you do me a favor? And uh, it turns out, according to the brilliant work of Ira Katz Nelson, that that's one of the things that the people who are screwed worst like. That ultimately, if your entitlement for government services comes from a bureaucrat expert dispassionately deciding you need them, that is way scarier than if the, your entitlement for government services is transactional, that, you're, that your member of parliament owes you a, a job for your kid. They owe you filling that pothole because you did them a favor. And so, because of the fickleness and um, sort of uh, because they don't have a dog in the fight, the idea that like social workers or traffic planners or hiring committees should make those decisions is threatening 
to people who don't sit on hiring committees, whose families don't contain social workers. Um, these are people who, these people are just a black box and sometimes the elites will help you, sometimes they won't. It's much more predictable, much more secure to develop a transactional arrangement. So by the end of the 19th century, government jobs, infrastructure building, things like that in America were governed, by, and in Canada, were governed by the spoils system. You exchanged your votes at election time for future favors, and everybody understood that to be okay. Now, this, of course, led to massive underservicing, uh, uneven distribution of services, um, totally useless people having jobs for life, fucking up all the time, uh, high levels of nepotism, et cetera, et cetera. And so progressives came forward and went, no, we need merit-based hiring. We need a separate civil service that is walled off from the authority of elected officials. We need to strengthen these non-elected institutions. Um, and that's not how populism works. So, of course, one of the most important things with Sam is his unsophisticated theory of material exchange. The hot dog. Ah. Uh, Hot dogs are central to Sam's politics of material patronage. Uh, and they function like a cryptocurrency uh, that everybody is paid in hot dogs. And there's like ratios of hot dogs to putting up signs or doing a day's work or whatever. That's Sam's populist appeal. And he's, you know, your anti-corruption crusader. Um, now, Sam, though, you can already see incipient in Sam the authoritarian element of the populism, where we get authoritarian populism from, because ultimately Sam is a man of the people, but Sam's narrative is that he is more principled than the other people, that he is more confrontational, that he is a corruption fighter, he is a fighter of the elite, because he's not exact. he's a man of the people, but he is not entirely like the people. He is a defender of the people, but his affect and his personality make him uniquely qualified to judge others and to confront them, those whom he has judged. And you'll notice those Trumpian aspects in the campaign where before he's even won, he's pointing at people in the audience and telling them that he is gonna get them once he's got this job. When he has this power, he can go after them. And there you see that sort of, um, uh, you see that authoritarian style of populism. Now, Mr. Leahy, as the local authority figure, makes the opposite appeal, sort of accidentally. Well, maybe he makes the appeal. Maybe the liquor makes the appeal. Who is to say? But Mr. Leahy, um, I would say, however, however accurate it is, 
when Mr. Leahy finally has to figure out how to make his case, how he can be both populist and the opposite of Sam, it is a compassionate universalist theory of populism. I, I wept when I heard this speech because it really, um, I, I think it's one of the greatest political speeches of all time because it so speaks to the condition of the people in the audience. There's a mutuality of recognition and there's a discourse of acceptance. Who, who among us, who even in the whole world doesn't have problems? Who, who, who among us hasn't had a drink or two too many once in a while? Who, who hasn't had a puff or two too many once in a while? Who, who hasn't passed out in their driveway and pissed all over themselves? I'm serious here. Um, and, uh, this is, um, you know, and this is like the core of a left populist discourse, right? You see that in the Sanders ads from 2020. It's like, no, actually, here's the thing, folks. We're all really having a hard time. And I'm beginning to suspect that it might be the same hard time. Uh, it's, um... Uh, so it's suggesting that the differences of status and specificity are erased by this shared experience of being flawed and damaged. And also the shared experience of embarrassing oneself. Because that's what the speech is at the beginning. Jim Leahy has humiliated himself. He's there in a ridiculous outfit. It's all over. And he connects with the audience. The audience goes from, get off the stage, you drunk bastard. The audience goes from seeing Mr. Leahy as being uniquely humiliated to joining his experience of shame. Uh, and seeing that as universal. Well, of course, we all know what that leads back to. It leads back to chapter 14 of the City of God. That is the original case that Augustine makes for original sin. It is that, you, that it's not that we all should be ashamed, as people misread Augustine to say, it is rather that that experience of shame before God is universal and it binds us together. That just like all of the good things that bind us together and bring us to God, there is this upsetting, unpleasant experience that doesn't come from God, but nevertheless functions in the same way as this fundamental leveler and uh, motivator for something better. And then there's the other part of the show. We have to remember that it's season two. Mr. Leahy isn't out of the closet yet. So there's also this very interesting nod to the fact that he's in this relationship and that 
it's the failure of his relationship that's that's disrupted things. Again, one can see how universal that is, but it's actually two types of universality he's playing with. One is is this universal experience of our relationships not always living up to what they should be. But the other is that in the crowd, there's something weird about everybody that's just under the surface, that is both known and unknown, that is acknowledged and not acknowledged, that we all have something in our life that, um, that is that, uh, that secret. I think that's, that's why the whole crack smoking thing with Rob Ford went the way it did. I think that um, there's, that it produced this weird kind of solidarity and security for people. That like, hey, this guy's the mayor and he's just as big a fuck up as me. Um, and I think that we, um, I think that that's also part of the complexity of the appeal of Trump. Um, is that nobody believes him that he's a winner. That, or rather people hold that in a dissonant and complex kind of double think because the people who most relate to his life narrative are America's white losers. The people who have a story about a woman getting their job, a person of color getting their job, uh, not getting to go to a good university, uh, all of these stories of white victimhood and loss, um, they can attach to Trump because his claims of being a winner are so hollow, uh, because he's failed at so much. And people get to watch, get up and watch him fail every day uh, in these very public ways. So, and I think that that's one of the things about uh, populist discourses is that they, uh, they work better with religious discourses because they, their theory of the human soul is more similar. Progressivism is a hard thing to hybridize with religious thought because the great world religions, for all their flaws, mainly do not preach hierarchy and merit. Uh, those aren't the master discourses of religions that have sold themselves to millions or billions. Uh, and so I think that um, while the election comes back, uh, while the election speaks to the electoral politics of the show's age, a politics that's already over now, ended in Canada two years later. Um, the episode uh, ultimately is going to hold up because there are two theories of sin that are offered. Um, there is a Sam Lasko's, they are the sinners, and Mr. Leahy's, we are the sinners. Okay, folks, that's... Um, uh, 45 minutes of lecture. Questions? Comments? Yes, through poisoning. 
Uh, but yes, it, uh, but that's, that's not what the crowd chooses to see. I think you're, you're bang on there that, um, and that's the thing. Um, there's no verbal gaffe that will ever stop Donald Trump. Uh, (laughs) that's, uh, uh, the, they're immunized against that. And, um, yeah. Now, of course, um, there's also the afterlife of the sh- of that episode, which I I've mentioned previously, where um, Sam Tarasco goes on to be the only member of the cast who supports Rob Ford in uh, 2010, and um, he is um, drawn up sharply by the boys for doing so. Um, that they the show won't endorse specific positions, but it's pretty clear where the boys' politics are, and they're horrified when he uses their internet channel um, and his show High Fuckers to uh, to endorse Ford. And then they have that incredibly funny scene where they bring him on their show to interview him about the Ford endorsement, and. Um, uh, you know, and he doesn't have a good answer, right? He's abject and apologetic. And then, uh, Mike Smith finally goes, why the fuck did he call you cave? Well, uh, he didn't know who I was. Um, so somebody whispered to him, that's the greasy caveman from trailer park boys. But all he heard was cave. Uh, so he introduced me that way. And it did produce, I think, the greatest newspaper headline of the 21st century in Canada. It was the headline of the Regina Leader Post. Because, of course, it wasn't just Sam Tarasco who who endorsed Ford. Ben Johnson, the disgraced sprinter, endorsed him at the same event, while the CEO of Wing Machine ran out the back exit to avoid appearing in the photo. Um... And so I was like, well, I didn't really mean to endorse him, Johnson says later. I was like, I was just trapped. Uh, And then he announced I had. Uh, But the Regina Leader Post headline was, Ford endorsed by drug cheat Johnson, comma, greasy caveman. Uh, (laughs) Now, this had terrible consequences for Sam Wasco's character. Um, Sam is exiled to the woods and becomes a suspected Sasquatch in the next season um, as punishment for uh, the Ford endorsement. Um, you have to forget who everybody is uh, in order to keep the machine running. Or it's that he can detect that the, that the life form has become diseased and attaches himself to it only then. I think that's a, it's a magical property. Anyway, so... Um, Look, we're going to do uh, Christmas on uh, on Monday, um, and uh, anything uh, anything we want to that you guys thought would come up about the show, stuff that you were curious about that you thought we'd get to in the last twelve episodes, because uh, I want to make sure I cover that on Monday that we don't uh, leave any stones unturned in terms of our analysis of the show. Yeah, I thought you were going to get one of them to be a guest. <laughs> that oh, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> it would have. I mean, I 
I mean, the one I I'd want think... as a guest would be Barry Dunn. Maybe we'll get him next time. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't help that um, uh, my partner is an enemy of Mike Smith. Ooh. And actually, um, I mean, Jeff Berner is also an enemy of Mike Smith. So two of my, uh, you know, people most entangled in my lives are, um, are enemies of Smith. Uh, Bubbles. So... Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, Corey was in a fist fight with Mike Smith. One of her friends, uh, was, um, uh, Mike Smith is a, a somewhat notorious, uh, domestic, uh, abuser. So, um, uh, one of Corey's friends had escaped from a violent relationship with him. So, uh, next time she saw him, she punched him in the face. And in the case of uh, of Burner, actually, one of his early songs is about the Mike Smith disagreement, um, where um, he, uh, uh, where Smith's girlfriend begins cheating uh, with Burner during uh, his trip to uh, uh, his uh, tour of Nova Scotia with the original band, um, but then like. Smith is surprisingly okay with this because it turns out that she's actually in the early stages of the onset of schizophrenia and he's quite eager to for so, this to become someone else's problem. Anyway, so uh that's um that also yeah worked out not so well. I might have to send you another a donation for the to take the last class. I know. I think I think you're covered. I only think you've been in two or four or whatever it was. <laughs> so uh, no, you're good. Uh, you guys are good, and I really appreciate um, the fact that I could uh, monetize this work at all. It's not normally how I go, and normally just uh, this. But uh, without these courses, I would not have made it to this contract. So uh, it was a uh, made a big difference for us. Uh, keeping the lights on at both places uh, while we went through this. But now, even if I fuck this contract up, it's like 12 months of work and nine months of EI. I'll make it to 50. <laughs>